Good afternoon again. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. And we will cover, Lord willing, all uh, 28 verses in that chapter of, of Acts 18. If you're there, I just want to read to start off verse 1. Verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens. This would be after his time in Athens, after preaching in Athens, after doing the ministry that he did in Athens. After that, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Cities are often known for different things. Uh, Sometimes cities are known for food. So if you're in Philadelphia, what do you got to get? Cheesesteak, right? Oh, man, you guys are good. That was fast. If you're in Chicago, there's lots of stuff, but you got to get pizza. Uh, you got to get some deep dish. Uh, when I was traveling in the Philippines, I was with um, uh, Mike Tripp in Batangas, and he said, we got to have the lo mi. That's there's some uh, noodle dish that I had to have. And then uh, when I was in Olocos Norte, we had tupig, which is this sticky rice that you can only get up there. So um, lots of different areas known for their food. Other places are known for landmarks that they have. I know the, the Wallaces were recently traveling and they were in, in Pisa. And if you're in Pisa, you have to see the Leaning Tower. Uh, if you're in Paris, there's lots to see, lots of good food to eat, but you also have to go see the Eiffel Tower because that's, that's the landmark that's there. That's what you're supposed to see. If you find yourself in Cocker, Kansas, you need to make sure that you find the, uh, the largest community rolled ball of twine in America. That's that's what you're going to see in Cocker, Kansas. Um, here in Louisville, we're known for an event. The first Saturday in May, the world looks to Churchill Downs because of the running of the Kentucky Derby. Cities are known for different things. We said last week that while Rome was the political capital of the empire, Athens was the intellectual center. That's what Athens was was known for. Next week, we're going to go to Ephesus, which was the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia, and it was known as a a religious center for the worship of the gods. So what about Corinth? Paul is walking into Corinth, and what was Corinth known for? Well, Corinth's Corinth's claim to fame was a direct result of its location. I've got a map. I've been doing better with these visuals for you guys so you know what's going on. So this is where Corinth is. You can see Greece, Corinth is, this is just Google Maps, page grab, right? You can see it there, and it's, there's this, um, I've got it written down, that, that larger um, area of land there on the bottom is called Peloponnese. And so it's, Corinth was on this, this isthmus that connected Greece to Peloponnese. You can zoom in, okay? This is Google Maps, we'll zoom in. You can see where Corinth is on the left over there. And this is that narrow strip of land that connected Greece at large to that larger portion. And because of where Corinth was situated, geographically, that marked what the city was known for. Corinth became a, a place where trade was it, was, it was a trade center, it was a commercial center. So all of the land trade that went from Greece in the north down to Peloponnese in the south had to go through Corinth. By land and by sea, there were two ports. Uh, one over here on the left-hand side of your screen, so uh, to the west, and one to the east. 
And when ships were coming through, rather than go all the way around the outside here, they would come through this waterway and they'd stop off in Corinth and there was a port on one side and they would all get off the ship and then they would transport the ship by land across that isthmus and then it would it would reembark in the water on the other side. For many years they wanted to build a, a canal and many people thought about it and no one could really pull it off until the late 1800s and you can see that it's still there in this map and there's a picture of it. By the time they did it and accomplished it, they made it too narrow though. <laughs> and so now it's basically a tourist attraction. Uh, the, the larger ships that we have now can't make it through there. But that gives you an idea of what was going on. It was this commercial center. I'll put this map up of the, Paul's missionary journey. We'll refer back to that too. But it was a commercial center. So all this trade is happening in and out of Corinth. Now, there would have been a constant flow of people and, and goods through this city. It would have been a place that was filled with wealth and with people wanting to make money because there was money all over the place in Corinth. Um, as is also the case often with ports and people passing through, it was a place that was marked by immorality. Um, the very name of the city, Corinth, or to Corinthianize, or to be a Corinthian, was associated with immorality and even prostitution. That's what Corinth was known for. So Corinth is a city that's filled with trade. It's a place filled with pride. It's probably a place where there's a large disparity of wealth between the rich and the poor. It's a place that flaunted its immorality and really didn't try to hide all of its different indulgences. When you start to think about the city of Corinth, it's like many cities today, isn't it? It's a commercial center. It's a place where there's a great disparity of wealth. It's a place where there's a lot of immorality and there's a lot of sin within it. And so Corinth is, is much like any city that we come into, even like the city that, that we live in. And you might wonder how Paul would feel about walking into a city like Corinth. And you don't have to really wonder too much because he wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, this is what he says to the Corinthians about when he came. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration, demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of, wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If we were studying 1 Corinthians, we'd go a little bit more in-depth into think about what Paul is saying there about how he proclaimed the gospel. But for this afternoon, I just want us to note and to recognize that as Paul walked into Corinth and walked around Corinth, he was filled with fear. He, he felt weakness. He felt frailty in the midst of this city. Maybe you've never thought about Paul being afraid within the context of ministry, of, of Paul being intimidated, of Paul being nervous about what was happening. But he was. Uh, maybe it was fear of what this city represented. Maybe it was a fear of his own inadequacies. Maybe it was a fear of resting in his own strength rather than in God's strength. 
Maybe it was just fear that he was going to get stoned or beaten or thrown in prison again. Or maybe it was fear that that just was slowly leading into him wanting to kind of give up. That he was growing weary in well-doing. He was growing weary in ministry. And he was ready to head home. Fear is a, a great enemy in life. And it's a great enemy to the gospel's advance in our city and in our world. Fear keeps us from proclaiming the good news of Jesus to others. What's the reason we don't tell others about Christ? Usually it's fear. Fear can morph into discouragement that wants to just give up or just wants to let other people go about the work of evangelism. Let other people go about the work of discipleship in the church and in the world. I don't need to be a part of that because I'm just a little scared and discouraged. And so I ask in our, in our cities and that are, that are filled with wealth and, and pride and immorality, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of our fear and our weakness in the midst of these kind of cities, how do we endure in gospel ministry? That's the question I want us to seek to answer this afternoon. I don't have a, a summary statement. I have a question to answer, and that's the question. How do we endure in gospel ministry? How do we keep going? How do we not give up in this whole thing called Christianity? I want to think about how the Lord, what the Lord was doing to keep the ministry of the gospel going, how he was sustaining Paul, how he was spreading the gospel and growing the church. And as we think about these things, I want us to think about it in a couple different ways. I want us to consider what these truths would mean for those that we know that are that are in more formal ministry, that, that we have sent out or that we support through prayer or financially, so that we can understand how we can pray for them and how we can support them practically. We're going to pray for them later on during our, our potluck and, and prayer time. But there's some real ways that we watch Paul be encouraged and strengthened to endure in gospel ministry, and we can pray and support those that are a part of us that, that we partner with uh, based on this passage. But I also want us to think about how praying for and seeking these things in our own lives will allow us to be effective in the ministry that God has called each of us to as individuals and as a church here in this city. And so that's the question we're going to shape our thoughts around. How do we endure in gospel ministry? Because we are all, if we are Christians, we are all in gospel ministry. We are all seeking to minister the gospel to others. So with that question in mind, let's read Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned, Common word, right? We've seen that a lot. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Did you hear that? Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. Verse 23 begins Paul's third missionary journey. It says, after spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. We're going to bounce around a lot in this text, but I just want you to see the flow of it first. So you notice we go into Corinth, and in those first four verses we're introduced to Priscilla and Aquila. Then Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia in in verse 5, and Paul begins his ministry more formally. He's, He's speaking to the Jews, and then he goes and preaches to the Gentiles before the word of the Lord comes. There's this run in with Gallio there, and then it says that he was in Corinth for about 18 months. Then he he leaves, and we watch this whole travel happen. He goes from Corinth out here. Um, Well, first he gets his haircut uh, in Sancria. That was one of the ports of Corinth. He leaves Corinth. He heads to Ephesus, is just there briefly, and then travels all the way back down to Caesarea, visits the church, most probably in Jerusalem, and then heads back up to Antioch. And as I said in verse 23, then he begins this whole circuit again, heading back through Galatia, but this time 
Rather than going to Troas, he's going to make a beeline for Ephesus, where he'll stay for three years. And that's what we'll see next week. So that's kind of where we're going. And then verses 24 through 28 are interesting because Paul is not there. This is about Apollos. It's about the ministry of Apollos, um, Aquila, and Priscilla, and has nothing to do with Paul. This is what was going on while Paul was probably making this boat trip and traveling back to Antioch. So that's where we're at. But we're going to bounce around a little bit, answering this question, how do we endure in gospel ministry? And I want to give you three answers from the text that I hope will be encouraging to us as we pray for those in gospel ministry and as we seek to endure ourselves. How do we endure? The first is by valuing partnership. By valuing partnership. And as we think about partnership, we're going to think about it in, in three different ways. We're going to think about it as in terms of friends, fellow workers, and funds. You could say money if you want, but that doesn't begin with F. And that's why we have three Fs. Friends, fellow workers, and funds. Um, the first people that we meet in Corinth are this wonderful couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who are seen throughout the story of the early church. It's interesting to note that um, they are always, almost always mentioned together, and usually when they're mentioned together, Priscilla is mentioned first. Not common in the Bible to see the wife mentioned before the husband. Uh, different theories about why that is, which we won't delve into. But Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth because they had been driven from Rome. Claudia, who was the empire or, em, emperor, ordered all of the Jews to leave Rome, possibly, according to some historical records, because of the conflict that was being caused by Christians coming into the synagogues and preaching the gospel and the, the wrestling about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah that was happening there in Rome in the synagogues. Uh, that would make sense because it doesn't seem like Priscilla and Aquila became Christians in Corinth, but rather they were part of this ethnically Jewish group of people who had come to trust that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, they may have been founding members of the church in Rome before they got kicked out. We don't know. But when they are expelled, they, they bring their tent-making business to the crossroads city of Corinth. That's a good place to start a tent-making business, right? This is where everyone's traveling back and forth, north, south, east, west. And so all of these travelers would make it a good place to set up shop. And it may even be that that was how Paul first met them, because Paul was also a tent maker. Though he had been trained as a, a rabbi, he also picked up a trade, which was um, very common, and his trade was tent making. I just, in my mind's eye, wonder if maybe he wandered into their shop or their stall, because he knew tent making and just started talking about the trade with them. And then maybe Paul looked for an opportunity to talk about the gospel with Priscilla and Aquila. Or maybe, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila started to look and see what Paul thought about the gospel. And then suddenly they realized they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And they formed this, this deep uh, friendship. And so Paul stays with this couple. He makes tents to support himself and the ministry. But he also spends his Sabbaths in the synagogue seeking to persuade uh, others that Jesus is the Christ. As I think about Priscilla and Aquila, I think what a wonderful gift from the Lord that Paul, who had been alone in Athens by himself, has now been led to a couple who is of the same trade, who had not been there except for the expulsion of Claudia. That's why they landed in Corinth. And, that's, and, and Paul just landed in Corinth as well by God's sovereign leading. He meets them and he meets this couple of an equally vibrant faith in Jesus. He's no longer alone. 
He has friends to encourage him, friends to correct him, friends to comfort him, friends to support him. We're not going to endure in gospel ministry without friends. And Paul needed friends. He needed Priscilla and Aquila to encourage him and to be near to him. And while we're thinking about how they encouraged Paul, I think we can also be encouraged by the ministry that a husband and wife can share together. I love that they're mentioned together because it shows me that they're both involved in this ministry, that there's a companionship in marriage where they are mutually blessing one another. And then as a team, this husband and wife couple are blessing others. They're blessing Paul. What a wonderful thought that that a a couple can, can bless others together. They can be a ministry team. And I think in that you could make an implicit argument for the the blessing of marrying someone who is of, of a like faith and has a similar desire for gospel ministry. If you marry someone who is not of a like faith and not doesn't have a zeal for gospel ministry, then that's not going to happen. Your, your marriage will not be a, an outpost for ministry. There's an encouragement here for couples to work together to bless and encourage others. A husband and wife together can do things... A wife can do things that a husband can, can't, and a, and a husband can do things that a wife can't. And so there's a team aspect here that I really find encouraging. There's other evidence of gospel friendships in this chapter. Uh, Silas and Timothy are reunited with Paul at Corinth. We saw that in, in verse 5, they arrived from Macedonia with news about how well things were going in the Thessalonian church um, and in Berea. And they, they come back. I, I think that's, we, we may take that for granted, but we read the New Testament. A lot of people deserted Paul. A lot of people left him. John Mark is the one that we have in the, God, in, in the book of Acts, but many people never came back with Paul. And these guys showed up. And I'm sure, can you imagine the, the reunion that that would have been? The joy that that would have been for Paul and Silas and Timothy to be back together. I think we can see uh, gospel friendships as we go even further and think about when Paul returned back to Jerusalem and then to Antioch, to those old friends that had supported him, the people that had sent him out and rejoiced with him at all that he was able to share about what had happened. We need friends on this journey of, of following Christ. We need old friends and we need new friends. We need old friends who can tell us and show us how much we've grown and we need new friends that can encourage us and help us in ways that we that we haven't been helped before. And we see how God in His kindness provides these friends. As we think about those that we know who are in gospel ministry, especially those who are overseas, I think this is a prayer we might pray for them. That they would find friends. That, that they would find people who not only have a, a common faith, but maybe common interests, like tent making. <laughs> or whatever it might be, but people that they can laugh with, people that they can enjoy fellowship with and share the burdens of life with and share a meal with. Can you think about being in a foreign country and, and finding someone who you, you say, this is a friend, this is someone that I can relate to and I can be honest with and I can help, that will help me. I think we might pray for that. Pray that those that are in ministry would keep old friends around, voices from the past that would encourage their faith, but also that God would bless them with people on the crossroads of life that would be a deep encouragement to them. And we might pray for that for ourselves too, because we need friends. We need old friends and we need new friends. We need friends who will walk with us and weep with us and rejoice with us and mourn with us and 
eat with us and pray with us. We need each other. That's why we show up every week. This isn't, you're not trying to earn your salvation. If you, if you came here because you thought this would earn points for you with God, then you're here for the wrong reason because it doesn't really. Uh, we're here to support one another. We're here to be friends with one another, to encourage one another on the journey, to share our, our sins and our struggles and our victories. We risk opening our hearts and our lives to one another because we're not going to make it unless we have friends on this journey. We will never endure in gospel ministry without friends. Of course, these individuals are not just friends for the most part. They're fellow workers. These are people who are working with Paul. They're they're partners in ministry. Priscilla and Aquila are found throughout Paul's letters. And even here at the end of this chapter, we find them ministering in ways that Paul could not. They were fellow workers. Paul couldn't be two places at once. And so when he left Ephesus after a brief visit and headed uh, towards Jerusalem and towards Antioch, Uh, They stayed in Ephesus, and while they're in Ephesus, and Paul is not, they meet Apollos. And Apollos is there boldly preaching Jesus, but also still tying things to John the Baptist. And so Aquila and Priscilla come alongside him, and, and they disciple him. They teach him the way of God more accurately. And they take the time to invest in him. And as they take the time to invest in him, Apollos says, I want to go back over to Corinth. He, he, takes the, he takes what he's learned back over to that same area. And so he goes over to Achaia, and he greatly helps and encourages the church there. And all this is happening while Paul is somewhere else. He's, he, he is, he's not the, Paul is not the only one that God is using for the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos are being used. They're partners in ministry with Paul. And Paul trusted them, and he he knew that they were able to to do this ministry. We're reminded that we as individuals and as a church can't do everything. We need fellow workers. We need to train up and disciple one another, because there's a ministry that you can do that I can't do. There are people that you can share the gospel with that I will never have an open door to share the gospel with. There are things that I can do that you can't do. And there's, there's, there's this massive task that we have before us, and we all need each other, and we all need to be fellow workers in this ministry. In fact, if I try to do everything, I'm not going to endure in gospel ministry. I need you, and you need me. And so we train up and we disciple one another as fellow workers, rather than thinking that we're the only workers. If Paul thought he was the only guy that could take the gospel to the ends of the earth, It never would have happened. But Paul was training up people all the time. He was helping people to understand the gospel. And then he sent them out and he trusted them to do that ministry. And as a church, we need to partner with and we need to support other churches to see the gospel go forward in power. We're not competitors with like-minded churches in our city. We're partners. Apollos had gifts that Paul didn't. And Priscilla could do things that Aquila couldn't. And so too, it's, it's true with churches and parachurch ministries. There are churches and ministry with, ministries within our city that, cannot do, that, that we cannot do what they're able to do. We don't have the reach or the resources or the talent pool that they have. But there's also things that we can do that others can't. There's ministries that we have and ways that we can serve and people that we can reach that no one else will. We need partners. We're not in competition, friends. 
I'm not fighting with the church down the street. We're not fighting with Encounter, of course. That would be ridiculous since we're sharing space with them. Uh, But we're seeking out gospel fellow workers and we're seeking out ministries that we can partner with because we're never going to endure if we think we're the only game in town. If we're the only people that can accomplish this task. But if we find people that we trust, ministries that we trust, individuals that we trust, and we partner together, then we will endure and the gospel will go forth in greater power. We're also seeking in that in those fellow workers, that we need to fund them. So as we think about partnership, we're thinking about um, we're, we're thinking about friends, we're thinking about fellow workers, and we're also thinking about funds. That's what partnership means. Did you see what happened in verse 5? There's a shift that happens when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia because Paul becomes occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Before the arrival of Silas and Timothy, Paul was supporting himself through the trade of tent making, and therefore he's only able to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But when they arrive, we can infer from other letters that Paul writes that they brought with them a financial gift, a gift from all the churches in Macedonia. And all the churches in Macedonia funded Paul's ministry so that he didn't have to make tents anymore, but he could be in full-time devoted gospel ministry day by day. Paul often will talk about the fact that he earned his living while preaching the gospel so that he wouldn't be a burden to the churches or to show that he wasn't proclaiming the gospel for financial gain. But he also encourages churches to generously support those who do the work of the ministry. So both are are possibilities, and Paul did both. He did tent making, uh, he, he, he supplied his own funds, but he also used the funds that people gave him so that he could work in gospel ministry. And so we find that it's good and it's right to support the work of of a pastor. It's good and right to support the work of those that are devoted to the ministry. And as the church, think about this, the the churches in Macedonia made it possible for the gospel to go forth every day in Corinth. And in the same way, we have the joy of partnering with others to see the gospel going forth around the world. We might even think, uh, Trevor mentioned Sean Martin. Let's just think about something really specific. Who here has been to Bulgaria or Serbia? Who has plans to go to Bulgaria or Serbia? Anyone? (laughs) Probably none of us. But you know what? We are partnering with the work of the gospel in Bulgaria and Serbia by supporting him in prayer and financially. You are making financial sacrifices so that the gospel can be the gospel ministry can be stronger in Bulgaria and Serbia because we are supporting Sean. We could never if we said, well, we're going to take the gospel to Bulgaria and Serbia ourselves. It would never happen. But when we support others that God has called, we get to be a part of this bigger thing that's happening. If we're going to endure, and maybe endure is not the right word at this point. Maybe we would say if we're going to thrive in gospel ministry, we need to value. Partnership. We need to see the need of friends and fellow workers. We need to recognize that we can't do everything on our own, so we train up others and we send others out and we support others. And in all of this, we are enabled to, to do what the book of Acts is calling us to do, to join in on this never-stopping, ever-increasing, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. It happens through partnership. So we're going to endure and even thrive by valuing partnership. 
The second thought that I see in this text is we, we will endure by courageously trusting God's leading. We will endure by courageously trusting God's leading. Notice as Paul is preaching in verse 6, as he's in the um, synagogue, he's preaching, but they are opposing and reviling him. And so what does he do? It says that he shook out his garments, meaning I want to shake all the dust of this place off me as a protest. I don't want any of this left on me. And I'm out the door. And he says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We've seen Paul do this before, but he, he walks out the door. And where does he go? <laughs> Did you notice where he went? He went to the house of this guy named Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God. And where was his house? Next door. <laughs> I, I I've never really noticed that detail, but you start thinking about how bold that is, that Paul leaves the synagogue. He says, your blood be on your own hands. I'm out of here. And he walks out the door and he goes next door to this guy's house. And he starts proclaiming the gospel in this man's house. That's a bold move, but it's a bold move that bears fruit because we see that Crispus, and who's Crispus? The ruler of the synagogue. He makes the walk across the street and he comes over to Titius Justice's house and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And along with him, many of the Corinthians start to believe as well. And so Paul is courageously trusting God's leading. To say those words takes powerful uh, conviction to say, I am going to trust that this is what God wants me to do and I'm going to leave and I'm going to go right next door. Paul knew what happened to him often when he made bold moves like that. He'd be beaten. He'd be hurt. I think that's why the encouragement that we're going to look at in a little bit follows immediately after that, where the Lord shows up and says, that's not going to happen this time. You keep preaching but he courageously trusted God's leading in that. I think another place we see that happen um, is in, in, in Ephesus. So if you notice, he, he, gets, he, he gets on this boat, he has his hair cut, we'll talk about that, and they, in verse 19, he comes to Ephesus, uh, and it says that he left them there, he, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, as we see later on, but he himself, did, he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews for a, a little bit, and they asked him to stay for a longer period. Can you imagine? I'm in Ephesus, Paul's in Ephesus, and the people in the synagogue, as opposed to those in the synagogue in Corinth, who were reviling him and opposing him, the folks in Ephesus say, will you stay, Paul? And what does Paul do? He leaves. He says, no, I can't right now. He declined. And taking leave, he said, I'll come back if God wills. That's conviction about the Lord's leading in his life, about the fact that I, this is my, I need to leave. I'm going to Jerusalem. This is on my schedule, and, I, and I've got to go. They beg him to stay, and he doesn't. He says, I'll come back if the Lord wills. And he doesn't know if he will get back to Ephesus. He wanted to go to Ephesus so bad. And the Lord had prevented it earlier. And now when he has the chance, he doesn't stay, but he heads back. He will eventually get there and he'll be there for, for three years. But we start to think about how the Lord leads and how he, he gives Paul a unique boldness to understand that leading about when to stay and when to go, when to fight opposition, and when to leave those that are asking you to stick around. I don't know that there's any, I can't give you a, 
list of ways to know when that is, but I think that we courageously trust as God opens doors for us or closes doors or opens doors and we say, well, that's not the one I'm supposed to go through. We trust the Spirit's leading and we do what He calls us to do. We say what He tells us to say and we trust to know that that's what's going on. I think about those that we support. Uh, I think about the wolves who are leaving Africa at this point. Uh, And that's a hard decision. How do you know when to do that? I think that's something that they are processing. But it takes some courage to trust God's leading and to trust that this is what we're going to do, to to trust when to stay and and when to leave. I think we can pray that for those that we serve to know what doors they need to walk through and what open doors they actually need to not walk through and, and what closed doors they need to break down and all these other things that to, to courageously trust God's leading. I think there was something unique about Paul that allowed him to endure and to courageously trust God's leading. But I think underneath it all was also God's strengthening spirit. And so that's, I think, the key part of the text here. And that's the final thing that we have to endure. It's by trusting in God's promises and the power of his spirit. How are we going to endure? By trusting in God's promises and the power of his spirit. After his his move away from the synagogue, we saw we see this in verse nine. The Lord comes to him. So imagine Paul. He he's just shaking the dust of the synagogue off of him. He's gone next door, so they know right where he's at. And then the leader of the synagogue joins him. And so the the Jews are not going to be happy about that situation. And in the midst of that, the Lord comes to him in verse nine. And what does the Lord say? He says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, Paul. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. What a, what a tender and emboldening word from the Lord to Paul. Can you imagine the comfort that that would bring to him in the midst of this circumstance? He says, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Does that sound familiar? We see that all throughout the Old Testament. We see it as the one that comes to my mind is is Joshua chapter 1, over and over, where he says, be strong and courageous. Just because? No, for for the Lord your God, I am with you. The Lord your God is with you. I will not forsake you. I'm going with you as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And Paul's encouraged, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Everyone else may be against you, but I am on your side. What a specific word. He says, no one will attack you. No one is going to to harm you. Uh, That would have been, I think that was a fear that Paul had, that he's going to get beat up again, that he's going to be physically harmed. And the Lord says, no one's going to attack you to harm you. The, that support of the Lord is confirmed in the, the story about Gallio. So we have this mob that shows up at some point in those 18 months that, that Paul was sticking around. And they make a united attack on Paul, it says. They bring him before this tribunal. They accuse him of teaching people to worship God contrary to the law. They probably were purposely generic on saying the law. 
because they, they meant their law, and Gallio has no jurisdiction on the Jewish law. He has jurisdiction on the Roman law, and they're just saying the law. And Paul's about ready to open his mouth, it says. He's ready to step in and defend himself. But the Lord defends him how? Through the mouth of Gallio, the Roman uh, leader. Gallio speaks up and says, essentially, you guys are ridiculous. They're not doing anything wrong. They may be breaking your law, but I don't have anything to say about that. And so deal with it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge about these things. The support of the Lord is confirmed by the words of Gallio, but Gallio isn't the one that deserves praise. God is. Paul is encouraged by the support of the Roman official, not that Rome was supporting his cause. He's encouraged that God is working amongst him and supporting him. We need the support of God. Paul didn't need the support of Gallio. And we don't need the support of any government. If Gallio would have thrown Paul in prison, that doesn't matter. The gospel is going to continue to go forward. But God chooses to use Gallio as a voice of reason and as a voice of encouragement to say, Paul, I am protecting you and I'll use any means. I'll even use this secular Roman official. I don't know exactly, but it says here he's supposed to go on speaking, supposed to go on talking because of this promise from the Lord. It could be that the vow that we hear about later is actually maybe a response to this. He's there for 18 months, and we read in, in about this haircut, right? It seems sort of strange at Sencrea. Paul had his haircut, or he was under a vow. It was probably a Nazarite vow. I was just reading in, in Numbers this week, describes it. It's essentially, uh, you don't cut your hair for a period of time. Uh, no fermented drinks of any kind. No grapes in any form whatsoever, including the seeds. And no touching any dead bodies. You can't be near any dead bodies. And it was a, a way to offer thanksgiving and, and to show devotion to the Lord. And it may be in response to this vision that Paul said, I'm devoting this time, and I'm I, out of thanksgiving and out of commitment to God. I'm going to take a Nazarite vow, and I'm just going to, I'm going to really focus on serving the Lord in this moment, in the, the time that He has me here. And then when He gets to Sincrea, which would be the port leaving Corinth, that's when He has His His haircut. And the way this would work is Paul would cut his hair, he would shave his whole head, and then he would take that hair. He wouldn't get rid of it. He would take it with him to Jerusalem and offer it up as a sacrifice. He would burn it as a sacrifice of thanks to the Lord. And so you can imagine in Paul, all of Paul's belongings as he's making this long boat trip, he's got a whole bunch of hair uh, to take to Jerusalem. And that's where he would offer it up as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But he makes this, this vow to the Lord to show his, his devotion. And so you can, or his thanksgiving for God's protection it may be. I think that's a, a good principle. You know, I've, I've had moments in my life where I'm so filled with thanksgiving and I wish there was somewhere I could take a grain offering or something and just say, thank you, Lord, for providing for my family. Thank you for doing these things. And there's ways that we can find ways to commit ourselves to the Lord. Um, it's not required. Uh, it's not something that Paul had to do. Certainly not. He, he knew the stipulations of the law, but there were, there were also moments where he could say, you know what, I want to practice some unique devotion to God and unique thanksgiving to God, unique focus on the work that He's given me. And that's what He did with this vow. Um, 
back to this encouragement. Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul's to keep doing his ministry. Why? Because I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And then he ends with this promise. For I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. What an encouragement again to Paul to think that the Lord has, uh, as Jesus would call them, sheep, uh, lost sheep that are not yet in the fold. But we're going to bring them in. And Paul, I'm going to use you. The Lord's doing a work. He says, I'm doing a work here in Corinth, Paul, and I want you to be a part of it. I'm gathering people from all nations, all peoples, and I want you to be a part of it. He wanted to use Paul, and so he encouraged him, don't give up, keep staying, keep going, keep enduring in the ministry. Maybe that's a word that Paul would, that, that God would give to us. Don't give up. I have many people in this city. I'm doing a work, and I want to use you. There's people that, Grace Fellowship Church, that you can reach that no one else can. There's missionaries that you can support. They're going to reach people that no one else can. Don't give up. I'm with you. Be encouraged. I think one of the stories from this could be uh, Sosthenes. Did you notice this guy at the in verse 17? It says they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. You might say, well, I thought Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Well, Crispus became a Christian. So they had to get a new ruler of the synagogue. You can't have a Christian ruler of the Jewish synagogue. So they got Sosthenes, and Sosthenes became the new ruler of the synagogue. And he's this man that's, that's beaten before the tribunal. But interestingly, if you look at 1 Corinthians, it says, this is the introduction, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother who? Sosthenes. Our brother Sosthenes. I, it's got to be the same guy, right? I mean, I can't imagine it's someone else. But So Sosthenes is either, there's two ways this could have gone. Either Sosthenes had converted and was, at that point, they're in transition, so he's still the ruler of the synagogue, and so they beat him. And Galileo says, I'm not paying any attention to it. Or, here's another option. Sosthenes is beaten because he's not dealing with this Christian problem well enough, and then all the Christians come out and take care of him and bind up his wounds and he becomes a believer. But Sosthenes is a guy that God had in mind, that God was pursuing. In this city, I have people, I, in, I, I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul, you got to keep sticking around. Stay at Tidius Justice House. Stay next door to the synagogue. If only for Sosthenes' sake. So that he can become not just a believer, but a fellow worker. He's right there in the introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. I find that encouraging that our God has people in this city, that our God is, is pursuing souls. He's pursuing souls as we gather on Sundays. He's pursuing souls as you go to work on a daily basis. He's pursuing people that you come in contact with in the grocery store. He's pursuing people that are on the side of the street that you walk by. He's pursuing people from the nations that show up at coffee week by week and hear the gospel and learn uh, the message 
uh, to learn English and learn about who Christ is. He's pursuing souls. And so I think God's word to us in some ways in enduring is, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. Some of us maybe haven't shared the gospel in a long time and haven't thought about it because we're scared. What's God's message to us? Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have people in your city that are my people. And so you can't be quiet. You can't be afraid. Keep talking. Keep telling them the truth. How will we endure with that? Because that's hard ministry. How are we going to endure in the gospel ministry? We'll endure if we value partnership. If we don't try to do it all on our own. We realize that we need friends. We need fellow workers. We need fellow churches. We need fellow ministries. We need other people that are a part of this. We will endure if we value partnership. We will endure if we courageously trust God's leading. If when we see the Spirit and and feel the Spirit leading and prompting and opening our mouths, that we courageously do and say what He's called us to do. And we will endure when we rest in God's promises and we rest in the power of His Spirit at work in us, accomplishing His will. And so let me just read these words from verses 9 and 10 again. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people.